Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics, Part 11, New Testament Transmission. With the New Testament, we can't argue for a reliable transmission on the basis of meticulous Hebrew scribes. After all, the New Testament was written in Greek. More often, especially early on, the Christian scribes focused more on quantity than quality, so they could get the word out as quickly as possible. However, the sheer number of manuscripts that survived and the relatively early date of several ensure that we can employ a range of strategies called textual criticism, to recover the original text within 99.5% accuracy. In fact, when we compare the New Testament to other ancient literature, it's almost embarrassing how much better it is than the others. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for the grade. Here now is Apologetics Part 11, New Testament transmission. So we're going to talk about New Testament transmission now. This is lecture number 11. And in particular, we're going to talk about two major factors that need to be tested to prove reliability. Those two factors are the number of copies and the time span between the extent and the autograph. We have these two factors to prove reliability of transmission. One is number of copies and the other is time span between autograph and extant manuscript. MS is the abbreviation for manuscript. MSS is for manuscripts, plural. What is an autograph? It's the original document that the original author wrote. It's not just a signed baseball, okay? But it is the original document. So the autograph for, say, I don't know, the Gospel of John, what year do you think that autograph was written? Does anybody want to take a guess? 90s. 90s. Typically, scholars date it to sometime in the 90s, you know, uh, whether liberal or conservative, they usually go into the 90s somewhere or the year 100, something like that. Here's the thing paper is not usually going to last. 2,000 years, okay? So you have to make a bunch of copies. Take a look at this Jason David Badoon quote because it's very good at describing what it is I'm trying to say. Dan, could you read this? Yeah. So yeah. this is Jason David Badoon in his book called Truth in Translation, one of the best books ever written about translation bias, and it's out of print. Dan? That brings me to my first point about how we come to have a Bible. The original manuscripts written by Mark, Paul, and the other writers in the New Testament, what technically are called the autograph, no longer exist. We have the Bible in forms of copies, of copies, of copies of the originals at best. There is nothing mysterious or diabolical about it about the disappearance of the original autograph. 
keep leafing through a book over and over again for a few hundred years and human had to change it. I mean, think about your own Bibles. You know, have you ever had a, a, a Bible wear out on you? Yeah. You know, and the longer you're at it, the more times you have to get a new Bible. Like, I have this one Bible I absolutely love. I, I, have, I still have the Bible I had when I was at the Bible College here uh, 10 years ago. I loved that Bible. But eventually, it just fell apart. It just fell to pieces. And I still have it on the shelf, but it's not, it's not viable. You know, I can't use it. You know, it's like as soon as you go to open it, like Isaiah f slides out that way, and the Psalms are over here, and it's just awful. I only used that Bible for like probably five years. You know what I mean? Imagine trying to use a Bible for 100 years or 200 years, or like inheriting your great-grandmother's Bible and reading it frequently, at least once a week. Because usually these scriptures, these manuscripts, would be used not by like us, the way we use our Bibles, but by the church every Sunday, public reading of scripture, as opposed to each person having their own, at least early on. Jacob? Carry it around with you. Stuff it into tight hiding places several times, drop it in the rain and mud a few times, and loan it to people time and time again. Books wear out, they get damaged, they fall apart, they fade. This is what happened to the original writings of biblical authors. I don't mean to sound disrespectful, but I'm sure the early Christians did their best to take care of these writings. But sometimes, <coughs> but times were tough, and these manuscripts apparently circulated widely. Eventually, they simply, simply crumbled away. Josiah? Fortunately, before that happened, copies were made. And then these copies were copied, and so on, until a fairly large number of copies were in circulation for each book of the New Testament. By now, you may be getting pretty pessimistic about the Bible. But take heart. Modern biblical scholars have developed all sorts of strategies for compensating for all of these errors. Brooke, take over. At some point, Christians began to collect the individual books of the New Testament and form them into sets. Up until then, the Bible of the Christians was the same as the Bible of the Jews, or what Christians now call the Old Testament. In addition to that Bible, there were the books that were taken very seriously as sources of distinctly Christian teaching, or what one early church writer called the Memoirs of the Apostles. These additional books were read from when Christians gathered on Sundays and were used in private study. It became clear by the use they were being put to that these books were every bit as important to Christians as the books of the Bible, and so they should become part of it. Not all of the local Christian communities agreed which books were worthy of such a status and which were not, but over the centuries, a consensus developed among the Christian leaders. <laughs> and by the end of the fourth century, the list of books to be included in the New Testament, what we call the canon, was generally agreed upon. Uh, we should go to Alex. Involved in the collection process was concern over having manuscripts that agreed with each other and were relatively irrefutable. Since autographs were already long gone, there was no way to know for sure how the manuscripts should be agreed. But examples that differ dramatically from the many other copies to which they would be, be compared were destroyed. In each city, the local bishop had the authority to approve the biblical texts and to confiscate the better copies. As Christianity grew and prospered, the individual manuscripts were used as sources for which to make copies of the entire Bible. Eventually, complete Bibles replaced the library as separate books that were used, and people began to speak of the Bible as a single book, rather than as a collection of individual books, which are the Bible. Jamie? Uh, in the first century, 
first few centuries of Christian history, um, missionaries traveled widely to spread the good news and translated as they went. Thus, Jesus' own disciples who probably spoke a local Galilean variety of Aramaic and Semitic language found that they had to translate their teachings into Greek to reach many of the people they wished to convert. Christian tradition tells us that Mark, the Gospel writer, got his start as Peter's interpreter in front of Greek-speaking audiences. Paul knew Greek himself and wrote his letters directly in that language since he was writing to people who spoke Greek. At that time, Greek was to the ancient world what English is to the modern world, and a kind of international language that people learn if they want to have business, social, or intellectual dealings beyond their own country. All right, so you're starting to get a little bit of the picture here. We're talking about lots of different manuscripts circulating, uh, getting copied. Uh, we, we can't use a scribal argument of the Sopharim and the Masoretes of the Hebrew text where they carefully counted the, the columns and uh, washed their hands or changed their clothes or whatever crazy stuff they did to ensure accuracy. We can't use any of that because we're dealing with a totally different kind of situation right now. What we're dealing with here is evangelistic an evangelistic movement, right? So what matters for the scriptures? What are the Gospels? They're evangelistic documents themselves. Matthew is an evangelistic document designed to get someone to believe and commit their life to following Jesus and His words. That's, and, it's, and it's designed to be read by Jews and to convince them. Luke is writing for more of a Greek audience, right? To Theophilus, and he's trying to get the exact truth of the matter for Theophilus. You know, and so on. And so the Gospels are evangelistic. Uh, and so what do, you, what do you do when you're doing evangelism? What's more important, accuracy or quantity? Yeah, you're just like, hey, I, I don't have, we don't have the money to hire a professional scribe. So Dan, you're a professional scribe today. Here, get a piece of paper. I, I think Sister uh, Sandra in the back has got a piece. Sandra, bring down that piece of paper. Uh, that old uh, piece of sheepskin you had in the back room there. All right, Dan, now you see these weird symbols over here that you can't read? Copy them onto that sheepskin and get it right. You know, and then, and then it's like, oh, we, we got another, we got a goatskin over here. All right, Talon, write it on the goatskin, you know, and then, you know, it's like, get this message out there to as many people as possible. It's not, say a prayer, dip the pen. Oh, we're on the name of God. Hmm. I got to go over here and do some stuff and then, all right, now we can do it. And somebody comes in, I'm supposed to ignore, sorry, um, I'm a scribe. No, it's not like that for Christians. For Christians, it's like, let's just get this message out there. And so what you have is tons of little differences in the manuscripts. And especially in spelling, because a lot of times if you want to produce, if you want to mass produce in a handwritten age, do you know how to do it? Anybody know? Yeah, yeah. You have one person stand in the front and read slowly or spell letters individually, and then everyone else writes it down, right? Here's the thing. Certain words sound the same and are spelled differently. You know what I mean? So you might spell it one way. Somebody else might spell it another way, depending on which words you think you heard. Those are most of our errors that creep into the manuscripts. They're errors of sight, not of sound. In other words, when they go to actually publicly read that scripture, everyone still gets it right. And their culture is different than ours. They didn't care about spelling. Like nobody made a big deal about spelling in their culture. I should have been born 
I've been to Ephesus, I've been to some of these ancient places, you look around at the inscriptions carved in stone, they'll spell words differently, like on the same inscription. And you're like, what? But they, they always said it out loud when they read. You always read out loud. So when you say it out loud, it sounds correct, regardless of how it's spelled, right? Probably in the late 4th, early 5th century, Augustine came across a Christian named Ambrose. And he said he's the only person he's ever met that can read without moving his lips. We all do that, right? That's our culture. What are you doing? Reading, right? Well, how come I don't hear anything? Because we don't use our lips when we read, right? But in the ancient world, you did. So it's a very oral culture. It's not a textual culture. It's an oral culture. And that is a big difference that explains a lot of this stuff. But anyhow, let's talk about a uh, number of copies and time span in between. First up, number of copies. First of all, I want you to know just a few things about New Testament manuscripts. That is that they're, they're, the early ones are called unseal manuscripts and they are all capital Greek letters. All right, I'm gonna give you three categories of Greek manuscripts. Unseal, minuscule, and lectionary. Okay, so uh, unseal is all capital Greek letters. We have 306 of these manuscripts dating as early as the third century. Two examples are Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, both date around the year 350. Those two uh, manuscripts are significant because they contain the entire Bible, in, in particular the entire New Testament, right? I'm going to pause you on that and how, how about if I show you one of these codices. Uh, give me a scripture from the New Testament. Matthew 8, 1. What? Matthew 8.1. Matthew 8.1. Why, why do you want that one? Okay. Okay. So this is Matthew 8, 1 in Greek. And here we can see some manuscripts. Let's pick. That's Vaticanus. All right. So that's Matthew 8, 1 from Codex Vaticanus. Can anybody read that? It says kata, right? That's not too hard. What do you notice about it? I mean, other than individual words that the Greek nerds are picking out, what else do you notice about it? All capital letters. What else do you notice about it? There's no space between words. No, there are like accents and stuff that were probably added later. But look, I mean, yeah, when you zoom in, it does look a little sloppy. But when you zoom out, you're like, wow, this scribe kind of had it going on. All right, let's, let's take another manuscript, Codex Sinaiticus, on that same text. You can see that there, you know, it's a different color paper, different style, some extra symbols going on here. These are added in by my software, okay? So ignore those. Those aren't, those aren't original. And then if you hover over it, it gives it to you in Greek and English. What? And a transcription of what the manuscript actually says. Yeah. So, and you can see how manuscript damage happens, right? You can see it right there. So that's what we're talking about here, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking about actual pieces of paper that are like 1,600, 1,700 years old. It's crazy, right? It's crazy that we have any of this. 
<laughs> even if we had one scrap of paper from, you know, 2,000 years ago, we'd be like, oh, do you see this piece of paper, <laughs> right? But it turns out we don't just have one. We have 306 of these all capital manuscripts from this early period. You have, then you have minuscule manuscripts. Minuscule manuscripts are cursive. What did I show you there? All capital letters, no words in between, or no spaces in between. Minuscules are cursive manuscripts that emerged in the year 8800. So from 800, they invented cursive. <laughs> now you have words that run into each other. Um, and we have 2,856 of those minuscule manuscripts. So we had 306 and then 2,856. And these numbers change over time. There are two reasons why these numbers change. One, people still discover manuscripts today. They find more. Two, sometimes old manuscripts get destroyed, like when a country such as, I don't know, Syria is in a protracted civil war and stuff gets bombed. Or World War II, we lost manuscripts there, too. So manuscripts are, you know, we discover more, and sometimes we lose ones that we had before, which is why Daniel Wallace has pioneered this whole manuscript research team to go around and photograph manuscripts so that we have a digital record of them, and he has a whole website dedicated to that. The third category of manuscripts is uh, what we call lectionaries, and these are... New Testament scripture in the sequence that it was to be read in the early churches at the appropriate times of the year. So it's not a manuscript where it's like um, necessarily in order based on how the Bible puts it in order, but it's in order based on how they're going to use it in the church that year. And so we have 2,403, give or take, of these manuscripts. So if we add it all up together, we get over 5,000. Well, here, you can, write, you can write that down if you want. Although those numbers are probably inaccurate by now because they keep finding more. You know what I mean? <laughs> Since the beginning of Since the beginning of the lecture. Actually, um, my friend Victor went to a lecture that Daniel Wallace was giving, and he started the le lecture by saying, we just found a new manuscript, and this is what it says. Because <laughs> he's on the cutting edge of finding new ones all the time. All right, let's look at page 142 in your Meister book. And remember, I told you there's two things we're really working on here for New Testament transmission. The first of which is the number of copies, which we've now established at 5,565 copies. And now the second is the time span between the original and what we have today in the museums around the world. And I, I should show you that. Might as well, right? Here are a list of the papyri, the approximate date, what they contain, their textual fam family, and where you can actually see it on planet Earth today. Okay? So you have P1, which stands for Papyrus 1. It has a little part of Matthew chapter 1 in it. And you can go to Philadelphia and look at it. P2 is in Florence, Italy. P3 is in Vienna, Austria. You don't, don't have to write these down, okay? P4 is in Paris. P5 is in London. P6 is in Strasbourg. Look at this one. P7 is lost. Formerly it was in Kiev, Ukraine, but now it's lost. KC Hansen is the person's name. What is Alexandrian? I'm kind of curious who has the name in it, but. <laughs> All right, so you have different text families. You have the Western text family, the Alexandrian text family, and 
the Byzantine text family. Whew, almost lost it there. Alexandria is a city in Egypt. It's actually a great vacation city in modern Egypt on the coast. And that's one of the centers for where a lot of manuscripts were found. So manuscripts that are found in that area around the city of Alexandria, they label as Alexandrian text type. But you can see that there's not just a few of these manuscripts. In fact, I'm just going to hold the button down now and show you what we're talking about. So those were 107 of them right there of the papyri. But then you also get, let's see, what are these? These are collections of manuscripts. And that goes on for a while. And then these are codices. This is not just a uh, scrap of paper, but this is a whole Bible or a portion of a Bible. Uh, a codex is a bunch of pieces of paper that are sewn together. It's what we call a book. Christians seem to be the first ones that did, that did this sort of thing. Anyhow, this is Codex Sinaiticus, which you've already seen now. And Codex uh, Vaticanus is right here. That's in Rome, in the Vatican. That's why it's called Vaticanus. But it's cool that we have pictures of it, right? And it's available to see online. Same thing with Sinaiticus, which is in the London uh, British Museum. Great place to find stuff stolen from other civilizations. And then uh, you have a bunch more, right? Like I said, there's over 5,000 of these manuscripts, but it doesn't end there because Christianity was intensely evangelistic from the beginning. And one of the things about the ancient world is that people spoke different languages. Yeah, Greek might have been the big one, but there were a lot of people that spoke other language, such as Coptic, Syriac, Aramaic, Old Latin, right? And so we have ancient manuscripts in all these languages too. In fact, it turns out we have about 10,000 copies in Latin, 9,300 in Ethiopic, Syriac, and Aramaic. So that's 19,000 more copies. Hello? Right? So now we're not talking about 5,000 anymore. Now we're talking about over 24,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. These ones are in Greek. And these ones are in all different languages. So it includes the Greek, but it also includes these other languages. Now, this might sound impressive to you or it might not sound impressive to you. I'm not really sure. But it's about to appear really impressive as soon as you go to Meister's book and look at page 142. And this is the point I was making to you earlier, Josiah. All right, look at Homer there. He wrote in the 9th century BC. We're not sure about the earliest copy or the time span, but to this day in the museums around the world, we have a total of 643 copies of Homer's writings. All right? That's a lot, right? Then the next one he has on here is Herodotus, which is a, a historical book from the year 480. The earliest copy we have is from the year 900. That's a time span of 1,300 years between the time it was written and the oldest copy of it that we have today. And we only have eight. Then you have Thucydides. The gap is 1,300 years, eight. Aristotle, the famous philosopher, 1,400-year gap, and we only have five. Plato, we have a 1,200-year gap and seven. Demosthenes, 1,300 years, and we have 200 copies, which is pretty cool. Caesar, uh, probably Gallic Wars, we have a thousand-year gap, and we have ten copies. Tacitus, his historical book called The Annals, 
is a thousand year gap and we have 20 copies. The New Testament, 5,735. That's not counting all the other languages that it was translated into. It's embarrassingly good. It's like so impressive, you almost feel bad for the other guy, right? It's not, it's not just winning the game, it's like, they, it's like they didn't even score any points. You know what I mean? Go ahead and, go ahead and find this piece of paper. Hopefully, hopefully it, it made it into the pages I handed out to you. This piece of paper is the oldest fragment of the New Testament. It's called P52, Papyrus 52. Its language is Greek, it's written on papyrus, it's about the size of a credit card three and a half inches by two and a half inches. It's seven lines on each side. This screen here shows you both sides of it, if you're curious. And it dates to within 30 years of the Gospel of John. What's the next closest we have on the list? 1,000 years. That's the best you get in these secular historical writings. 1,000 years. We've got a piece of John 18 within 30 to 40 to 50 years of the Gospel of John itself. That's embarrassingly good, right? It's like 30 compared to 1,000. 643 compared to, if we're just going to be conservative, 5,500, right? Or Meister's numbers have even more, 5,700. It's crazy good what we have here. This is held in Manchester, England. It's from the Alexandrian family. It was found in, uh, there's, there's a story about how they find all these things too. Each one of them has its own story. I think this one, they were going through some like stuff the monks were throwing away or something and some papologist looked at it and he was like, what? He recognized that, I, I don't even, how do you do that? I mean, you can barely see anything here, right? And it's just this big, right? And, and this expert looked at it and his eyes just trained to recognize these things and he's like, Oh no, that's New Testament right there. That's John 18. I can tell you, that's a piece of John 18. Look, look, at the re look at the reconstruction here. So the red letters are what's actually on the manuscripts. The black is all the other words that aren't there because it's just a fragment, right? And so he's spotting the Jews here, right? The Jews and to us, and he's seeing, this is, say this is saying in order that the word of Jesus be fulfilled, which said, uh, it's, it's hard for me to read capital letters, right? But this, these are the words, and they're, and they're able to reconstruct it. Here's, here's the actual English. Therefore Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Judeans said to him, it's not lawful for us to put him to death. This was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken to show by, it probably were signified, by what death he would die. So anyhow, this is just a little fragment of the Gospel of John, chapter 18, and it just happens to represent the oldest piece of the New Testament on planet Earth. And it wasn't even found that long ago. Found in 1920. <laughs> which, 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 which means that, you know, it's possible they could find another whatever, you know. I mean, people are looking for this stuff. So we, ha we should have good confidence in the New Testament. You know, I mean, it's not that we had these pro-scribes that were like super accurate, but we had crazy quantity and Christians really cared about the New Testament. And so they were careful to preserve it. And so many 
of them survive to this day and are in varying levels of uh, shape. All right, so the whole practice of comparing over 5,000 Greek manuscripts and all these 19,000 other languages totaling to 24,000, what we, we have are textual critics, and what they do is they make, they produce critical editions. The two main critical editions for the New Testament are the Nestle Aland 28th edition and then the UBS United Bible Societies 4th edition. Those are the two critical editions that anyone who makes a translation of the New Testament is going to use in order to make that translation. Because translators are not going to get passes to go to all those museums and analyze every little scrap of paper to try to reconstruct the best Greek text. That's the work of the textual critics. They've been at it for over a hundred years. They do an awesome job. It's hard, tedious, like a jigsaw puzzle kind of work. And they have established the text. One of the most famous text critics that has done a lot of work is named Bruce Metzger out of Princeton. And his name is on you know, a lot of these uh, books other than uh, Alland. Before we had the 28th edition and the 4th edition of the Nestle Alland and the United Bible Societies, before that we had what was called the Stephanus text. And before that we had Erasmus. There are some steps in between these two, but uh, Erasmus published the first Greek New Testament in the year 1516. Then his next edition was in uh, 1522, which you don't have to write that down. He had something like 20 to 25 manuscripts available to him back then in 1516. And then Stephanus used the Erasmus text and uh, maybe has some access to a couple of more manuscripts. But this right here are based on 20 to 25 manuscripts. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because it was the Stephen's text or the Stephanus text the guy's real name was Bob. I don't know why he went by Stevens. That's where the King James Version comes from. Based on the Stephanus, which is based on the Erasmus text. I, I don't have a year for the Stephanus text, but I think it's in the 1600s. Sometime in the 1600s. And so the King James Version is a really accurate translation of these 20 to 25 manuscripts that are behind the Stephanus text. Here's the problem. Since then, we've kind of found 5,000 more. And a lot of them are much older than what was available when the King James Version was translated. So the versions, the manuscripts that the King James is based on are younger than the manuscripts that modern editions are based on, which totally confuses people because they think the King James is old, therefore it's more reliable, and it's hard to read, and usually harder things are more reliable. And it's just one of these things that's opposite. Modern translations are actually more accurate because they're based on older manuscripts. And when you have only 20 manuscripts, you don't really know for sure if you have everything completely accurate. In fact, there was this one part in Revelation where Erasmus didn't have any Greek manuscripts. At the very end of Revelation, it talks about the tree of life. If, you're, if you take away words from this book, we'll take away your part from the tree of life, something like that. He didn't have it, so he made it up. He in invented his own Greek, and he put Book of Life 
And if you check out the King James Version, it says Book of Life there. However, all the other manuscripts say Tree of Life, right? So that's just an example of one uh, little mistake that slips in when you're um, basing things on the King James. I grew up with the King James. I don't have a bone to pick with it. It's just not the best translation anymore. I think at the time, it was the best translation. But then we had a discipline called archaeology get invented and paleography, and we had a huge amount of discovery happen. I'm just going to mention three significant differences on this whole textual criticism issue that you have to be aware of if you're ever going to talk to a skeptic about the New Testament. The first is called the comma Johannium. The second one is called the pericope adulterae. And the third, I think I just call it the long ending, <laughs> it's regular English words, of Mark. All right, so these are um, three additions that snuck into the manuscripts over the years. And once we started finding all these 5,000 manuscripts, it became clear that these three were not original to the Bible. So the Kama Johannium, I wrote a whole paper on this, I should have printed it off for you, is 1 John 5, 7 to 8. The Stevens Greek basically read as follows. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. And here's the problem. Everything between those brackets is not found in any early manuscripts. In fact, it wasn't found in any medieval manuscripts either. Which is why in 1516, when Erasmus produced his first ever on planet Earth printed Greek New Testament, he didn't have those bracketed words in his first Greek New Testament. And he's a, he's a, he's a Catholic in good standing with the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church said to him, uh-uh-uh, you're not getting rid of our best proof of the Trinity in the whole Bible. You're not doing that. And Erasmus said to them, if you can show me one Greek manuscript that has it in it, I'll put it in my Greek New Testament in the 1522 edition. So you know what they did? They got a couple of scribes and they generated manuscripts with this part in it in Greek and handed it to, slapped it down in front of Erasmus and said, put it in. And he put it in. What's the earliest manuscript we find then? Earliest day. Oh, it's a bit complicated. But there weren't any available there is one in like the 15th century, but all the other ones that are earlier than that, it's in the margin added in by a later hand. And it's not in any early manuscripts. None of the ones that we would rely on today have it in it, which is why every single version of the Bible takes that part out. And it reads as follows. For example, in the ESV, it's a little bit shorter. There are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, <laughs> right? You missed out the whole father, spirit, and word business, right? So the Kama Jehanium is a, an addition that snuck into the manuscripts that scholarship has identified and courageously, to their credit, removed, right? Isn't that cool that they removed that? Because it was bogus, right? Now here's the, the next one, the part about the adulterous one. And I want you to see this in your own Bible. Do you have your Bible present? This is John 7:53 to 8:11. I can show you what I have in my Bible here. 
This is the story of the adulterous woman that's caught in the act. I don't know what kind of sting operation that was. And uh, thrown in front of Jesus, and they said, should we stone her? Should we stone her? Moses says to stone her. Should we stone her? And Jesus pauses, and he writes on the ground, right? And then he says, what does he say? Whoever has never sinned. You all know it, and yet it's not in any of the early manuscripts. Isn't that crazy? You have memorized scripture that is not scripture. <laughs> what is my life? <laughs> Story of my life, right? Memorize the wrong verse. <laughs> All right, read us your footnote on John 7:53, Talon. What, do you have any notes on there? Uh, yeah, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it as John 7:53 to 8:11. All right, is it in the main text of your Bible? So do, you don't have John 7:53? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you do. Okay, so if if later manuscripts added in, why is it in your Bible? Is your Bible trying to be based on early manuscripts? What do you have? A bracket? Okay, so you have a bracket, just like I have a bracket in the ESV up here. What else do you guys see? Any? Do you have any footnote, Dan? I, on 753? I have 53, but then it disappeared. And I don't even think it has that story. It just says later manuscripts. Yeah, that story. Hold on. Let's, let's, see that, let's see this book here. Hold on. It's gone. Yeah, I think it's gone, man. Dan has a Bible that doesn't have it in it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, it's the NASB, but they took it out. They're trying to be honest. This is like the first honest Bible I've ever seen. Seriously, like I... Everybody always puts it in. Do you know why people put it in and why it's in every Jesus movie? Because people love the story. But look, that's not a good reason to keep it in the Bible because people like it. Was it original to John? It's not original to John, then we take it out. Maybe it actually happened. Maybe it's even historical, but it's not John. You see what I'm saying? Because the early copies of John don't have it. Yeah. yeah mine has a bracket that the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have, have it. They yeah. Yeah. put it in brackets. Yeah. So people are putting it in brackets, but they're leaving it in because you know why? They want to sell Bibles. And if you take it out, there's going to be some group somewhere that's going to be like, you're taking stuff out of the Bible. They're not taking it out of the Bible. It wasn't in the Bible. Somebody put it into it. It goes all the way to verse 12. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Is there no kind of evidence or good or some kind of good evidence that would make us think that, you know, this was a battle story? It would be the sort of thing that if I, if I gave you, let's say, the Gospel of Thomas, which is not in our Bibles, but it's an ancient historical document claiming to give you stories about Jesus. And I handed you the Gospel of Thomas and I said, tell me if there's anything in here that you think is historical, actually happened. It would be very difficult for you to figure that out on things that diverge from what the legitimate Gospels tell. So it's, it would be in a, the category like that where you're like, maybe it is historical, maybe it's not. I don't know. But in the earlier copies of John, it doesn't exist. Later on, in a later manuscript, it shows up in Luke. And they're like, why is there this floating story floating around? And then eventually it settles down in this place. But if you read this from John 7.52 to John 8.12, it's smooth, it flows. 
the kind of vocabulary you find in here is not Johannine. It's not the way John wrote things. And all the scholars know this. Everybody knows this. When they asked Daniel Wallace, who was reading about Daniel Wallace? Jamie read Daniel Wallace's chapter. When they asked Daniel Wallace, who's on the committee for the NET, New English Translation, why did you put it in there? You know it's not there. Daniel Wallace said the following. He said, I fought and I fought and I fought against the committee. I told them that we should take it out. And I could not convince them. So what they decided to do was to decrease the font size so it was harder to read from the pulpit, put double brackets around it, and insert an extensive footnote saying that it's not original. Come on! Have some guts! You know, it'd be like the comma Jehanium and just take it out because you know what happens? What ends up happening is somebody who doesn't know about these kinds of issues ends up running into a skeptic when they go to college and the skeptic's like, do you trust your Bible? And they'll be like, yeah, I trust my Bible. And then they're like, well, what, what's the story with the adulterous woman? Your Bible's corrupted. And it freaks them out and they lose their faith. Which is why I always make a big point to tell people about this so that you don't get freaked out by some <coughs> rabid person attacking you. Okay, here's the last one. It's Mark 16. Actually ends in verse 8. Mark 16 nine and following is the long ending of Mark. And you'll see this yourself as soon as you flip there, there in, in your Bible, you'll see that it says in, at the end of verse eight, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Now, what do you, what do you see in your Bible around verse nine? Do you have brackets? Me? Yeah. You. Well, are you just going to Atlanta College or are you going to Atlanta Bible College? You know what I'm saying? It's our middle name, girl. Yeah, I got brackets. Oh, you got brackets? What do you got, Dan? You got, so they deleted it for the other one, but they bracketed this one? Yeah. Unbelievable. Is it too much to ask for consistency between these three? Ooh, I wonder if the Wait, say it again. OGFOMMT. All right, take a look. Take a look for us, Brooke, in the buzzard edition. Uh, what he does with that. But look, all of our Bibles, unless it's a King James, omit the Kamo Jehanium. Dan's, but not the rest of ours, omit the Pericope adultery. And then they should all omit this last one too. Like, why wouldn't you just be consistent? It's the same thing. Early manuscripts don't contain that long ending from verse 9 to the end, so let's not have it in our Bibles. But if you take it out of the Bibles, then it causes people to get all freaked out, and they stop buying your Bible, and they buy the Bible that does have it in there. <laughs> okay? Now I have a little side note at the very bottom of 20. Okay. An alternative ending. Yeah. Yeah, there's another ending possibility as well. There are all different kinds of theories as to what happened. That's not my point. My point is when it comes to textual criticism uh, and figuring out which manuscripts are better, you take a look at the NA28, you will not find those scriptures. They don't exist there. Or the United Bible Societies. They just don't exist here, there. But yet if you look at any English translations, they're all there, which is a little frustrating in my opinion. If you're curious about, and there are other variations, right? But if you're curious about what the other variations are and why the critical editions picked one over another, I suggest you get this book by Bruce Metzger called A Textual Commentary on the 
Greek New Testament. That's his book, and there's even a new version of it that's written in English as opposed to scholarly English. And I have both of them. But what it does is it basically goes through all the significant manuscript variations and tells you which ones they picked. And you can see what the other options are and tells you their reasons why. But I want to just list out for you the rules of textual criticism, and I want you to write them down so that you can kind of like get a little perspective on how they do this. Earlier is better. Two, carefully copied manuscripts are better. Three, wider geographic area is better. In other words, if you see a reading that only shows up in Alexandria, like the only begotten God of John 1.18, and you don't see it in the Western tradition or in the Byzantine tradition or in any other manuscript families, it's not as likely to be correct as if you find that same reading in multiple different geographically diverse regions of the world. Number four, more difficult reading preferred. That one's a little counterintuitive because you would think something that's easier you would prefer, but what's a scribe going to do? Is a scribe going to, in the process of copying, make it more difficult or smooth something out that's a little confusing? They're probably going to smooth it out. So if you see two alternative readings and one's difficult and the other one's easy, they're going to go with the one that's difficult because they assume that you would smooth it in the opposite direction. Shorter reading preferred. They would tend to make things longer than shorter. Divergence in, what's that? Wouldn't they try to make things as short as possible? No. Scribes tended to add material to it, not take material out. You don't want to ever delete the Bible, but you might add something in that you think, maybe you're copying Mark and you have just copied Matthew. And Matthew has a lot more than Mark in it. And so you're copying and you might just subconsciously do something from memory where you're like, you add in, like for example, in the Caesarea Philippi Confession of Peter, he says in Matthew, you are the son of the living God, right? In Mark, it doesn't say living. So it's like you might slip that word living in there because you're used to thinking of it in terms of Matthew. Over time, what ends up happening is they tend to make the Gospels more similar to each other than they originally were because they are used to copying and copying and copying. And so when they get to the same kind of incident, they want to use the same phraseology that they're used to rather than actually copying what's in front of them. And so this is something that the textual critics will correct for and get to a more original, okay. Matching author's style preferred. So if you have an author who uses, turn, like for example, John, this is a classic example. John uses certain words repeatedly, like light, truth, darkness, falsehood. He just has certain words that he hits. Like in 1 John, he uses the word no like a million times, probably because he's fighting against an early form of people who were, you know, later became the Gnostics who claimed to know things, right? But <laughs> that's the theory, but put that to the side. And then you suddenly come across something, some patch of it that he doesn't use any of the same vocabulary that that author uses throughout. You're like, whoa, what's going on here? And that's what happened with the adulterous woman. It's all different vocabulary than, and grammar than the outside portions of it. I mean, on either side of it. That's enough. There are more rules, and it's not an exact science either. A lot of it is tracing down basically the genealogy of the manuscripts and 
these rules aren't hard and fast either. Like an earlier manuscript is generally better, but you could have a manuscript from like the year 700 that's incredibly accurate because it was a copy, an accurate copy of a crazy early manuscript. And then you can have early manuscripts that are inaccurate, you know, so it's not an exact science. It's more of like something you investigate and it's a puzzle that you work on. And I'm very thankful for the scholars who have already done this work. This is not something we struggle with. We just pick up the NA28 and we read what it says, or maybe you're on the 27. Sorry that you're outdated. And you read, you read what it says. You know what I mean? And then you have all the footnotes and all the different options. They're right there for you in the apparatus. You have a question? No, All right. On that stretch, then, we will take our quiz. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.